are now listening to the Sick Invite Podcast with Kayla Herb and Ricky Grimes. Hello, my name is Kayla Herb. And I'm Ricky Grimes. And this is the Sick Invite Podcast. Oh! A storytelling show about all ailments. Big or small, chronic or temporary, the Sick Invite provides an inclusive space for you to share your story. What is wrong with you? Oh, easy, does it? Well, I'm a little, I'm a little sick. We're, we're, at, the, we're, at, the, we're at the end of our, of our uh, triumvirate um, uh, episode uh, voyage here. The three episodes, the three amigos. This is the this is the last uh, shell on the on the table. So I'm, ex- I'm a little excited to be in it. I'm excited to kind of proceed in our sick invite podcast voyage. But it is a little melancholy to uh, to to do that. But uh, but I'm excited. It's been a, it's been a trip. It's been a it's been a voyage. It's been it's been uh, gorgeous and and decadent and and also learning and, and sad at the same time. So and 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 how are you? There was a lot of adjectives I you threw in there. <laughs> well, I don't know how to describe. <laughs> You're playing the, Mad Libs. Well, the problem is, is it's hard to describe these these uh, last couple shows we've been doing, including the one today, because they're reflecting upon such serious issues, and we've had such great guests that have been able to uh, like eloquently explain their real truths to the, to you know such a way that it's 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 joyous in 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 a way for a person to be able to express themselves right i think that's always joyous to hear but when it's about something that's not enjoyable it also is is melancholy and sad so i'm kind of caught, caught betwixt those two emotions i would i'm wedged right in between like in and like between the fridge and the wall where you can't get to the you can't get to the penny but hmm. it's back there or maybe like a, in my case probably like a pretzel or something but i'm 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 betwixt I mean, I wouldn't have said decadent, but uh, I get it. This show is brought to you by KaylaHerb.com, where knit blankets, custom quilts, and other homemade items are available for purchase and custom order. Do you like our show? Yes. Please tell everyone about it. Follow us, like us, and share our content at the Sick Invite Podcast. We also have merchandise available. Hoodies are now available at thesickinvitepodcast.com. Swag. Along with our shirts, mugs, stickers, and buttons. Swag. If you like the work that the Sick Invite podcast is doing, consider supporting us financially. We graciously accept donations of any amount. Uh, your donation will help cover the cost of equipment, advertising, research access, and the time spent preparing for each interview. For $3 a month, Patreon members can receive monthly gift access to early to episodes, I said that backwards a little bit like Yoda, and <laughs> bonus content. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do so as well. You can do it through the module that's on our website. Just click on it on the com. Please send us your story through our website. There's a form to fill out at the bottom of the page, and we will contact you with further instructions. We want to hear from everybody. All experiences are valid. Today's episode is the third of three that are being used for my disability and diversity course. So thank you to Professor Andrew Markham and CUNY School of Professional Studies for allowing me to share this data in an accessible platform so that others have the opportunity to learn from these issues. If you haven't already, please check out our preview episode to hear more about why we chose to interview these three individuals. For her privacy, we have changed her name. We will refer to her as Carol. Carol. Thank you in advance for listening. Ricky and I will return after this interview to discuss these topics further. Enjoy. I'm 26 years old. I am a straight white female. She, her pronouns. Is that how you? (laughs) Um, And yeah, I live on Long Island. And right now I'm a registered nurse working at the bedside in a hospital. Okay, so tell me more about your career as a nurse and why you wanted to participate in this study. 
So right now I work in oncology. So I strictly work with people living with cancer. Um, I work with them from the time they're diagnosed to through their treatment and at the end of their life as well. Um, and I solely work with women. Um, so these patients are chronically ill just based on their diagnosis, physically and mentally, depending on their um, progression of disease. And it's just affected me in a way that I can't really describe. So when I saw that you wanted to do like an interview like this, I'm like, my experience is a little different just because I'm really working with people who are very, very ill. Um, and I know how it's affected me. So I'm like, let me share my experience and see if it could help other medical professionals who might not be as exposed as I am. Um, so I see like medicine patients, surgical patients. So I see a lot of pain management and a lot of chronic pain. That's probably the biggest thing. Um, the chronic illness that we see is the pain management. Um, and these people are just in excruciating pain a majority of the time. Um, so that's kind of what I do <laughs> on an everyday basis. <laughs> that's great. And, you know, I'm excited that you're here because I'm going to assume that a lot of the people that or came to you, maybe came too late or found out their diagnosis too late. Um, but I don't want to make any assumptions. So are yeah. there any particular moments that you'd want to talk about in your position? I mean, there's like a lot of stories I hear as just regarding to what you just said, I hear a lot of women who were kind of pushed off because of whatever pain they were having, say they were having like some abdominal pain or breast pain or, um, just overall fatigue, it was kind of like pushed off to the side sometimes as to, oh, maybe you're just menstruating or you're just being dramatic or kind of get over it types of thing. And they really had to advocate for themselves and say, no, like something is really wrong, especially with the topic of just like menstruation, when they have this excessive bleeding and doctors just say, you know, or anybody, doctors, nurse practitioners, whoever it may be, um, oh, it's just a heavy period. Oh, it's no big deal. And they kind of brush it off. And then it comes out that they have some type of cancer diagnosis. And then they're left with, I knew something was wrong. Nobody listened to me. And now I'm here getting this treatment. Now, what am I supposed to do? So for them, and this is just based off conversations I've had with them, it's a very defeating feeling for them. Um, and almost like a helpless feeling like, I knew something was wrong, just nobody listened to me. And how could that be the case? Why is nobody listening? So that's really sad to see. And that's really another part of why I wanted to do this because people should be educated and exposed to all the possibilities of what their like pain or their symptom symptomology is could be. You know what I mean? So um, that's like the biggest thing are people just, women specifically, just being pushed off to the side. So yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So far, the people that I have interviewed that are medical professionals and also chronically ill or disabled people, mm -hmm. a lot of times in the midst of it happening where mm -hmm. professional is like, oh, you know, I think maybe something else is wrong. And they're trying to advocate for the patient 
or it's a patient saying, no, please look at me further. It's not just my period. Yeah. So going to offer a different perspective that I've had so far in my entire process of this program where you're kind of dealing with the aftermath of it. And there's a big sense of grief, of course, in cancer diagnosis, because that's a mm-hmm. major change in your life, yeah. but also with any change in your health. Um, yeah. You could be happy that you finally have a diagnosis, but also grieving the life you could have had if it was managed in time. So do you, in your training in oncology, do you receive a lot of training on empathy and how to manage the emotional aspect of your patients along with the physical parts? Um, So in, in nursing school, they do a lot about just caring for the psychosocial part of a person, right? So being a nurse at the bedside, it's a lot of compassion. It's a lot of empathy, but as far as in oncology specifically, it's a very short period of time where they educate you on therapeutic communication and really the grief process, um, for patients. So what I've learned really has been kind of at the bedside and figuring it out myself. And specifically, I work with a lot of end of life patients and we don't get a lot of education about what it means to care for the dying patient and that, that person's family. Um, so that's been a little bit difficult to navigate because it's a lot of heavy stuff, but it's also in that world of grief that, um, you know, you learn from your coworkers and, and you just kind of learn as you go. But as far as like formal training, it's very, very minimal, I would say. Now, was oncology something you decided when you were in school or was that just where you happened to end up? So when I was in school, it's kind of up in the air. I was like, I like working with oncology patients, but I also was thinking about labor and delivery. Um, and then I had one of my clinical rotations actually on a pediatric oncology unit. And um, I just love the holistic approach to it because it's very, a cancer diagnosis, you can have breast cancer, but at the end of the day, it can spread anywhere. So you really have to have a very like deep understanding of the physical part of cancer and how it can spread and how it affects everywhere. But you also have to have a very, what's the word? You have to have a very reflective personality. And I feel like those are two things that fit well with me. I really like talking to people just about their life experience. Um, I'm a very reflective person. I don't mind talking about death. I don't mind talking about grief. So it just seemed to be a really good fit for me, but it didn't, I didn't realize how good of a fit it was until I started working. So I just was like, oh, I could be interested in this. This could be a good fit. And then I just ended up being a student on an oncology unit. And um, I'm like, this is, this is where I should kind of be. This is where I feel like I'm being a service to others. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you gravitated towards that because it feels mm-hmm. like that could be a very emotional career path to choose, but you are, and I, again, I'm going to ask you this question, even though I already know the answer <laughs> <laughs> and how you manage it when you leave the office. I know that you are a very mindful person. You're always yeah. posting that on your Instagram and on your social media. So did that happen? Was that how, kind of how, how you always were? Or did you always, did you, was the mental self-care new once you got into this career? So that wasn't always how I was. Um, you know, I started seeing a therapist because I could tell that I was depressed and anxious and I, I knew it, but I, 
I knew the mindfulness stuff to help and like the meditation and stuff like that, but it just wasn't doing enough for me. So when I started seeing a therapist, that was really helpful. And that was around the time I graduated nursing school. I had got my job and I knew going into this profession that the emotional overload that you experienced, it would be a little bit too much for me. So I started seeing a therapist once a week, right before I started working. And then since then, I've just kind of implemented my own versions of self-care with therapy. Um, I would say right now I've been working for like a year and a half and it's been a little bit more difficult, I would say, just because right now in nursing, it's a very difficult time in regards to staff ratios. So even the self-care that myself and my coworkers, because we talk about this stuff all the time, may have implemented into our lives. It's kind of, it's hard to keep up. So I, I do what I have to do. I go to therapy. I do my walks. Like I have my self-care practices, but sometimes the emotional, I want to say burden. I don't mean it as a burden though, but it is like a toll on your body and, and your spirit, I guess. Um, becomes a little bit much at times, but that's nursing in general and any Mm -hmm. medical profession in general. Yeah. We, and the other people that I had talked to, we talked about how the younger generation is very open to therapy Mm -hmm. and has a great understanding of the toll that an emotional experience can have on you and how it can influence your care to your other patients. Mm -hmm. Do you find that maybe some of the older people that you're working with who've you know been there for 25 years kind of do the same thing every day do you find that they're less open to these kind of therapeutic ways to manage their career and to help them through these emotional mm-hmm. times you know i think a lot of the culture of nursing is just being able to handle it So I think you see a lot of nurses in the older generation having the mentality at work, but then it kind of overflows into their everyday life. It's a very good question. I would have to have a more personal conversation with some of my older coworkers about it. I wouldn't say that they're not open to it, but I also think nurses are people who very rarely take care of themselves in that way. They find it very hard to do so because when you're at the bedside, you're the person that they're coming to, everyone's coming to for answers. You're managing people's care. You're managing people's emotions. So then when you leave it, the idea of then going to a therapist could seem maybe like exhausting or too much where you just want to be kind of like mindless. You don't want to, you don't want someone to talk to. Um, but I find that's kind of the case with a lot of professions that are acts of like that are acts of service, really, mm-hmm. that you're putting people before you, and it's just kind of your human instincts. So I think not just older generation nurses, but nurses in general have a hard time maybe looking out for self-care. Does that make sense? It does. And I think you're right. And I remember a couple of podcast episodes ago, early on, we were talking to you know people who are in psychology programs looking to become a therapist or people who are social workers, and they all say, if my therapist doesn't have a therapist, it's a bad therapist. <laughs> and I agree. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> you so just got to have I, someone to put you in check a little bit. Yeah. You know? it's. I, I think you're right. There's kind of a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mentality. Um, and to, it's probably easier at first to just shut it off the emotions and not deal with mm-hmm. it. But obviously we've learned that's not the 
wisest decision. Yes. So I, I'm, I'm glad that people are having these conversations. Mm-hmm. Are you a person that's comfortable having with those kind of conversations with coworkers? If you find that somebody is maybe being distant or is acting inappropriately with their emotions or their anger toward patients, are you comfortable calling them out or talking to them about it? Oh, for sure. The, the women that I work with is predominantly women. Um, we have a very close relationship where we're very open about the kind of emotional fatigue that we feel being at the bedside. And the people who I'm closer with, I'm always checking in on them. You know, how are you doing? Um, is there anything that I can kind of help you with? Just kind of giving a compassionate ear to, to listen to them. Um, as far as like calling them out, I'm, I'm more so just like if I notice something, I'm like, how you doing? Just asking them kind of about their life, not so much like, oh, do you think you need to like go talk to somebody? Um, but I try my best because I mean, if you don't take care of the people, or, like you have to take care of yourself, of course. But in that environment, we're really the only people that understand. Um, so that's a bonding factor, but it's also, it makes it easier to vent to or listen to your coworkers because you really, you understand what they're going through. So it's, it, it's a little easier to offer them some advice or to receive advice from them, I guess. But I definitely do. I, I have really nice conversations with my coworkers and check in on them and see how they're doing. So that's great. I love yeah. that. Do you, would you think that thinking back on your clinical rotations, do you think that other areas of medicine are as comfortable discussing that or are quite as in tune with their emotionals? Because I think that when you're, when you're talking about end of life um, medicine, mm-hmm. way more emotional aspects involved with it, I would think yeah. than other, like say an emergency room. So do you think that when you were in your clinical rotations, they discussed the emotional aspects as much as they do in oncology? I don't think that they, I don't think that they really talk about it at all, honestly. Um, when you're at clinical, you're kind of, you're focusing on the tests, you're getting things done, you're learning about medications and how they affect the patient and, and symptoms and all these different things, but very rarely do they then flip it back to, you know, well, how would you as a nurse handle it for yourself? How would you go home and grieve all these heavy things that are going on? I never really got that in school. I learned how to therapeutically communicate to the patient but I never learned how to therapeutically communicate to myself, which I think is very important. There was a question on your list is what do you think people should learn more about in school or, or whatever? And I think it's really the aspect of self-care. I'm speaking from a nursing perspective, but I can imagine in other, you know, whether you're going for a nurse practitioner or physician or a PA, I, I'm not sure if they get that education either, which I think is super important. I think you would have a lot less burnout if you implemented that into the curriculum. You know, burnout seems to be a key word. Mm-hmm. Especially now, <laughs> especially uh, now. now. If I were to just meet you guys a month ago, you'd probably say the same thing, but now it's, <laughs> um, and we had somebody else, I won't make you go into vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the burnout is, intense and it's an issue. And that's why I wanted to interview more professionals because when it comes to the experiences that other people had told me about and that I've interviewed with, I don't 
think that it's one person to blame. I think that we have a faulty system and I'm trying to figure out what can we do? I mean, I can't fix it, but I can at least highlight the issues and kind of surround, get us talking about it more and have a better understanding to you. And then you get a better understanding of where the patient's coming from, because at the end of the day, the hospital's overwhelmed. The doctor's offices are overwhelmed. The patient that's going there in chronic pain is overwhelmed. And there's a big communication issue. Yeah. Do you think, are there any other factors? I mean, you mentioned burnout, you mentioned empathy. Are there any other factors? Like it seems like school and clinicals are kind of vague because I I would think it's impossible to learn everything. Yeah, it's impossible. But if you were to rewrite a curriculum or add another year to a program, what are other things that you wish that you were more equipped and better equipped and well prepared for? Mm. Sorry, that wasn't on the list. (laughs) No, it's okay. It's a really good question. This is specific to my practice. Um, I wish there was more death education um, in regards to how to handle it as a medical professional, but also what it looks like. Um, Because you get maybe like, maybe like one chapter about death education in school, but then no matter what kind of nursing you go into it, if you are inpatient, you are seeing a lot of death or you're seeing a lot of end of life, depending on where you are. In my world, I see a lot of it. Um, Like in EDs, they see a lot of it. Um, And there's not a lot of education about it. So I wish there was maybe not a full year, but maybe half of a semester about just what it means to care for the dying patient and what it means to, you know, be on the opposite end of that and how to care for yourself throughout that. That would be the biggest thing for me, for sure. I would think that the school probably focuses a lot on how to keep somebody alive but the probably the coping with this person does not want to be resuscitated they don't want Mm -hmm. to they want to die that's a Mm -hmm. choice and it's their right so you're saying you don't really get a lot of because that's a lot of things a big thing to wrap your head around especially for sure no for sure is that more of a learned experience within the hospital that you work for and or was that something just hardly touched upon in school? So they do, they, you know, nursing is big on advocacy and kind of giving your patient all the options and letting them make the decision for themselves. That's kind of the framework of nursing, I would say. And so those values are put into place, but then what to do with them after can kind of be vague and, and whatever. So when I started working, Um, and this is more specific to my personal practice, Um, it, the amount of patients that I saw who just said to me, I don't want to live anymore because they're so sick of their pain and their illness Um, and advocating for them, regardless of my personal belief about their situation, just advocating for them in that way can be a little bit difficult, Um, but also just transitioning from actively treating somebody for their cancer diagnosis to just doing nothing. You know what I mean? Besides providing them comfort. Um, So I learned that at the bedside because it was just so often, it was like patient after patient, the same conversation, the same experience, the same feeling of just being tired and then trying to figure out, okay, is this somebody who is wholeheartedly, they, 
want to stop treatment or is this a depressive episode? Like trying to decipher between a alert and oriented person saying, I don't want to do this anymore versus somebody who's in like a mental health crisis. So that's kind of, you learn that at the bedside specifically where I work. Um, and that's, that's so difficult because they don't teach you that they don't teach you that in school. They don't teach you that at all. So that was a little strange, not strange. It was tough in the beginning as a new grad to kind of wrap your head around it. Cause I went, I started working, um, I'm 25 years old and I'm caring for people who are some two years older than me, 10 years older than me, 20 years older than me. And I'm supposed to be the voice of reason about whether they choose to continue treatment or not. It's a very, very um, unique set of shoes to step in, I guess. You know, that's interesting. You bring that up because I had, when you said end of life, I just automatically assumed they were older and they had lived their lives. So I, I can't imagine the stress and the emotional experience when they're young and they, yeah. but it's, it's their choice. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a lot. Do you find that there's a lot of turnover in oncology? Cause I, I don't know how long, how many years somebody could do that. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's definitely a lot of turnover cause it's just, it's really heavy. I mean, where I work is the floor I work on is very death heavy. So we see a lot of deaths. We see a lot of transitions from palliative to hospice care. And that's something emotionally that it's hard to separate from sometimes. I think you have, like, you have to be like a very specific type of person to do that for a long time. Um, And even the people who I've seen do it for a long time, it's, you know, I empathize with them because I can imagine doing it for 10, 15, 20 years, how that can weigh on a person. But I also think it's, it's all a matter of perception, I guess, because there is a lot of value, I think, in working in this field, just because we're exposed to really the sickest of the sick. Um, And seeing that every day and seeing how they experience the world and then going out into the rest of your life, things really aren't so bad. I guess. So that's how I try and kind of cope with it is, you know, I know that not everybody can take care of these types of patients. Um, and I feel that it's, it's a good fit for me. But then I also say, you know, if I don't do something with my life, I feel it, it would be a disservice to them because I get a chance and they, their, their chances, you know, dwindling. I hate to say it in that way, but you know, they're, they're, their days are numbered and I don't know. I just, it just, I don't know. It just affects me in a way that I can't really describe just being able to take care of them. And then uh, just, I don't know. It was very impactful for me. I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> well, I mean, how do you even have words for something like yeah. that? Yeah. Especially when you weren't trained on it in school. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> Now, um, to go back to your patients a little bit more, the class that I'm interviewing you for is um, my disability and diversity class. And we've been discussing how disability studies in general is very white 
and male-centered and there's even within disability studies there's a idea of what disability looks like so a lot of people don't realize that cancer is a disability mm-hmm. pregnancy disability are you familiar with the social model of disability so I wasn't until you sent me that um, <laughs> I, I did I did I did Google it, but only briefly because I feel like you could probably give me better insight about what it is than I I could research. (laughs) It blew my mind when I learned what it was. So there's tons of ways to view disability theory, but there's two major ones. And there's the medical model and the social model. Mm -hmm. The medical model is what most people learn in nursing school or medical school where you are approaching disability in a sense that you want to cure it so that they can be a productive member of society and contribute to society and not waste resources, blah, blah, blah. A social model of disability views disability as a social construct and that you are only as stable as society allows you to be. Mm. So if we were in a more accommodating world, there would be less disabling factors in life. So for me, I'm disabled because working in an office as an immunocompromised individual right now is disabling. Mm-hmm. Um, chronic pain is disabling, but if I'm allowed a society with flexibility that allows me to rest and recharge, then I'm far less disabled. If mm-hmm. there's wheelchair access and people with mobility issues or who use mobility aids have access to all of our opportunities, they're not really mm-hmm anymore so that's in a nutshell does that make sense to you it does make sense it does so I I like to bring it up with medical professionals because you are probably in a cure 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 mindset but you specifically dealing with people who are like actually I don't really want it anymore just make yeah that's probably was a big thing for you to wrap your head around Mm -hmm. yeah so do you and we bring that up because in specifically in my diversity class, people of different demographics experience disability in different ways. So if I was a person of color, my disability experience would probably be way different than it is as a cisgender white woman with health insurance Mm -hmm. who has money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious if in your experience and the patients who have come to you and talking about how they got to this period that they're in and how, um, they've been neglected or were dismissed if you feel that their demographics influenced it. I know you mentioned you see a lot of women, I think you said entirely women. Yeah. Find that that influences their care. I think before coming to where they come to us, yes, for sure. And even probably with us too, at times, you know, I think women are often kind of again, like made to feel like they should just handle their pain because we like have our periods every month. So, oh, you should be used to it. It's not that big of a deal when a lot of women have really debilitating periods all the time. Um, But I think, you know, you use the term medical gaslighting. I feel like women are a population who experience medical gaslighting far more often than others, I would say. So you see a lot, you see a lot of that at the bedside with maybe their reactions. If you ask them a question and, and their trauma is kind of coming up, you can kind of see it. If you ask them something a certain way, they're like, well, 
no, this is what I feel. And it's like, no, I, I believe you. I understand. I'm just like asking questions. So I, I see it in that way. I see it coming out like, oh, so this is maybe a little bit more deep rooted than I'm realizing right now. Um, and I try my best to, something I like to do in my practice is really understand what the patient's experience is with their disability. Um, Cause I don't, I can never understand what they're going through. I can empathize and I can see what I'm seeing at the bedside, but I will never fully understand what it means to be diagnosed with cancer. I mean, I hope that that's never the case, but I try and ask them, you know, what their experience is with it, um, what their what their pain is like, what their relationship to their pain is like, if they if they have an emotional relationship to it, how it affects their everyday life. And I would say that that makes it a little bit easier for me in the moments where I'm like really burnt out and don't have a lot of space that helps me then reconnect with them. Does that make sense? It does. And I had asked somebody, we deal primarily with geriatric patients and I'm asking them, you know, how do you approach somebody when they're in pain? By the time they come to you, you know, what's wrong mm-hmm. in diagnosis, but do you still rely on their physical cues to kind of gauge how they're feeling if they're like groaning or, uh, um, so I don't, um, sometimes I do. But I think when you have people who are living with such chronic pain all the time, their body builds up a tolerance to it. So my 10 out of 10 pain might look a little bit differently than their 10 out of 10 pain because they're so used to it per se. Right. Um, and something I, we learned in nursing school that really stuck with me was that pain is subjective and not objective. And that it's not my job as a clinician to convince you what my idea of pain is. My job as a clinician is to understand what your version of pain is and then help you. Now, if there's a circumstance where, how do I say this? If there's a circumstance where, let's just say the post person's having an emotional experience, they just kind of want to be like numbed out and you can pick up on that. We have resources for pain management and supportive care that I would then reach out to and say, you know, I'm not really sure how to manage this person's pain. I'm not really sure where they're at with it. Can you come and talk to them? And then they come in and they, you know, they, they figure it out and it's wonderful and helpful because the moments where I'm burnt out and like, can't take it in. It's like, okay, we have people that they can talk to that they, that can help them and, and really manage whatever experience they're having right now. Cause you know, I, we give medication. A lot of my patients are on morphine, fentanyl, dilaudid, you know, these like really like heavy duty meds and in a regular hospital per se, you don't really see that as often the amount of times that I'm giving morphine and fentanyl to, you know, help with somebody's pain is far more often than you would see outside of oncology, which is very um, specific to oncology, but I don't know. It's just, I, I try, I try not to, cause you, I've had people laying in bed. I'm in 10 out of 10 pen and 10 out of 10 pain. And you wouldn't be able to tell by looking at them, but mm-hmm. I just, you know, I believe them and I do what I can for them. And I see what I can do medication wise or integrative wise and go from there. So that's what I try. That's like the biggest thing. Pain is subjective, not objective. And I repeat that to myself a lot. 
Yeah, that's great. I mean, just from other people that we've talked to and their experience in the emergency room asking for pain medicine, that's usually a completely different story. You say mm-hmm. 10 out of 10, like, are you really a 10 out of 10 now? <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. It's, it's hard, um, but it sounds like you have, um, and I don't want to make a wrong assumption here, but it sounds like your department has a lot of help and backup and assets where yeah. other are kind of overwhelmed and rushed it seems like your department makes the time with the patients is that yeah. I would I would 100% say that and I think that's because you know if you have cancer and you go to another hospital that's not so subset they're on a standard med search floor where you also have tele patients or you also have like GI patients so they're not they might not be getting the care for their pain that is beneficial for them. I, sometimes I, I feel very thankful when we have patients, you know, in our hospital, because I know that they're really, really getting the supportive care and the care for their pain that they need. You know what I mean? Where it might not be the same thing at another place. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think that hospitals would be better off built specialized like that like this hospital is built for heart surgery this hospital is built for birthing the babies this hospital is built for repairing the bones you break do you think that having one hospital where there's just here's the children's unit here's the birth unit here's the adult unit I don't know if it goes in any other specifics (laughs) just from the rooms that I've been in um, it's do you think that it's too broad that hospitals are built too broad? Maybe, maybe that, that could be the case, but it's also, you have to think about it this way. Like cancer is one of the most, like, how do I say this? Especially on Long Island. So many people are diagnosed with cancer, right? So you have a lot of people who need care. In other areas where, I mean, maybe I'm not exposed to it. Do they have the patient population to fund? Because as we know, hospitals are a business. Do they have enough, a bigger, a big patient population to fund a full hospital? That's very specific. I'm not sure. Do they have enough finances to staff an entire hospital? That's very specific, specific. Again, I'm not sure. So I think in an ideal world, that would be amazing because, you know, when you specialize in something, it's because you're passionate about it. It's because you want to understand and you want to learn. So then the patient gets better care. Um, so that would, that would be ideal. I just don't know if we have the manpower or the resources yeah. to do so. Feasible, at least not at this point. Yeah. World. Yeah. So- asking you a lot of questions focusing on negative things but you seem to have a pretty good place that you're working at which is a treat I love that <laughs> so I'm going to uh, ask if you could share more really positive things that you like how your department operates and that you think allows you and your other staff members to thrive and to give the patients the care that they deserve hmm. that's a tough question right now honestly on the list either. I'm sorry. I'm throwing a lot of curveballs at you. No, no, it's a, t- it's a tough one because right now we are seeing, um, the nurse to patient ratio is very, very high on average. I see between six and eight patients a night and that's a very heavy workload. So that's kind of 
putting a bias in my brain right now. But I would say the positives are that we do have a lot more resources to help our patients. You know, we have pain management, supportive care, physical therapy, occupational therapy. We have integrative medicine, acupuncture, massage therapy. We have chaplains. We have a whole forest where patients can just go. Um, we have music therapy. We have animal therapy. And so those are things that you, I'm not sure if you get them other places, but because of how specialized the hospital is, um, and people, you know, we get a lot of donors and people want to help. And so we have more access to these resources than other places might. So those are really positive things because I'm a firm believer that when you're taking care of somebody, it should be a very, um, I'm going to say inter- like a holistic integrative approach where it's not just you're caring for their symptoms, you're caring for a whole person, you're caring for their mind, their body, their spirit. And that's something that's very important to me. So a positive about working where I am is that value system is very aligned for me. That's great. Yeah. So my takeaway is that hospitals need money. Uh, <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> the, the hospital you work at you see commercials asking for donations, same thing with mm-hmm. other um, cancer hospitals. Um, and like, even just like hospitals that are not even in our state, you'll see commercials for it and, and people traveling to go to that hospital yeah. where I've never, I don't think I've ever seen a fundraiser for like our local hospitals over here. Um, and then I don't, I know that it's a business, but, and I, I don't know who, where's the money go? I, I yeah, don't I agree. Like, I, I don't want to say like, oh, we're paying all this money because I think that nurses deserve all the money in the world. Um, and I think doctors deserve it too, especially mm-hmm. with you guys are going to have to get there. But at the same time, w- what is making these things cost so much? Is it big pharma? What there's, we could go. Yeah, we could, we really can go down a, we could go down a rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it if they had appropriate funding to appropriately staff and appropriately give the resources, even just in the three people that I interviewed this week, there's a major difference in your, and how you're feeling and how your day-to-day is going, even though you are overworked right now, there's a big difference in how you are talking about it and how others are talking about it based on hospitals they've worked with and in different patient and areas that they've worked with. So it's, it seems like there's unequal attention and unequal allocation of funds being spread. So that's money. Yeah. Yeah. I often, but I often wonder sometimes because, you know, you get the, you get the illnesses and the diseases that get get the most attention, right? And they get a lot of funding. And so breast cancer specifically, you know, you, you see funding all the time, but I often wonder if every month was the awareness for diseases and illnesses where it's more televised, advertised, if people would be getting the same level of care. Do you know what I mean? Like if more people were exposed to all the different types of chronic illnesses that they are, if, you know, people living with these chronic illnesses would have a better experience and more research would be done. I mean, I'm assuming that would happen, but I often wonder why is it not just inherently that way? 
You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. you see so many people living with chronic illness and you don't hear anything about it. And it's like, why are we not hearing about this? Like, this is affecting this person's life. Why is one thing being more advertised than another? You know? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that has a lot to do with the perception of disability and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, p- disabled and chronically ill people are not seen in the world because they can't function in it. And then the world just goes like, kind of disappears, pretends that they're not here. Mm. So, but I was, you know, in seeing a lot of disability accounts and different articles talking about long COVID and how it's awakening autoimmune issues within people. Mm issues um you know diseases that were dormant are now here um a lot of viruses can do that um COVID happens to be one of them and how the amount of chronically ill and disabled people that are coming out of COVID and how it's going to be talked about more and are we going to accommodate this large amount of people or are we also going to pretend they don't exist and just move on my hope and I had high hopes in the beginning that things like remote opportunities or telemedicine, things like that to allow disabled people to participate in society um, would stick around. But as we're seeing, they're kind of going away. Yeah, yeah. That you, you made a great point about that, but it's just, it's a lot of it is how the attitude and that companies don't want to hire disabled people. And that's why we have discriminatory job restrictions, uh, job descriptions. Like you must lift this 20 pound box. You must be able to drive things that yeah. we don't have anything to do with the actual job posting, but they put it in yeah. there and say, sorry, you can't, can't be here. I so didn't even, I didn't even realize that until you just said that to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's in almost every single one. I've I know. But when you said it, when you forever. said it, I'm like, when you said it, I'm like, cause I, I've been looking at different, you know, job postings and I just, I'm like, wow, that's, that's spot on. And, and I, and as, is this how you refer to it? An abled body person? Is that the correct way? You can. Is that, is that. It's it, some people don't like it, but. Some okay. People, but but I, what's, what, what would be the more accepted way of saying able body most people yeah. won't you say abled yes no yeah that's why I was like oh I don't know if that's like oh, the so. correct way to say it um it, here, the only reason able body gets weird is because it make, narrows disability down to only physical and it kind of mm-hmm. illness or neurodivergency but from what Got we're showing, lifting a physical box able bodies is, is yeah problem. so <laughs> like I, I that never that never clicked for me Cause I guess it's something that is not a part of my everyday life, you know, but now I'm more, now I'm more aware of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and something else that I had talked about with a couple other people is the, like you had just asked that question, that answer probably would have been different last year or yeah. it might be different next year. So disability just as a um, culture is always changing because now they have disabled people have a voice they are, you know, letting it be known that they exist on social media, yeah. especially TikTok. Great place for disabilities, TikTok. You can find a whole lot of stories there. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I'm going to assume that in your college education and your career, they don't really talk about disability as a culture as much. 
Yeah, I wouldn't say so. I didn't, I, you know, I, I knew when I was in school that there are chronically ill people in the world, right? But I didn't get true exposure to it until I started working at the bedside. And I think that maybe something that should be maybe in school more is really maybe talking to patients about their experience being chronically ill. Because I think when you talk to another person about their experience in the world, it gives you a better understanding of how, or not understanding, but more of compassion for people and how to interact with them in a way. So I feel that when I'm at work, because I'm exposed to it, but not everybody is exposed to those things, right? So I'm, I'm happy that more people living with disability are coming forward and sharing their experience, because I think that's really the only way for people to change their perception. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so important. I would love to see more um, disabled participants in mock examinations. I know there are some people who are trying to make that, draw that into the curriculum, because, you know, you'll have people, there's also a big topic on TikTok, um, where, you know, people who use a wheelchair will say, no, I, I am sexually active. I can have sex. I'm having abdominal pain. Please check me for an STD. Yeah. Yeah. See somebody in a wheelchair and assume like, oh, well, they don't have sex. So let's take out their appendix and it would be perfectly fine. Um, that happened to a person. That's a true story. Really? Oh my goodness. That was in. Oh my God. Watch, watch the film Crip Camp. It's okay. I was, will. Right. Um, I believe she has CP and they just, wow. and uh, she got an STD from a bus driver that she was having an affair with and they removed her appendix, assuming that she didn't have, I think she had gonorrhea or something like that, but oh, wow. yeah. oh my God. <laughs> it's not, it's not funny, but it's like, you hear these, you hear these things and it sounds, it sounds so ludicrous. Like, why wouldn't you check for an STD? Right. But I guess people's perception is, or their bias is, oh, it yeah. can't be possible. And that's, that's one of the big things we talk about in my class is how to include diversity, um, mm-hmm. disability as a diversity, but also diversity within disability and how different illnesses or disabilities look on different people. Um, but one thing I wanted to ask you with mm-hmm. life um, and with diversity, I'm going to assume there's a big religious aspect um, in that as well. So are you ever exposed to religions that you're not familiar with and does the hospital accommodate that as well so there are religions that I'm exposed to that I had never not I wouldn't say not heard of um I've never been exposed to the actual culture of that religion they they do the best that they can um we have a rabbi a priest a chaplain um And then we have like social workers who specialize in religious practices um, and they can come. But I think, I think they really do a good job of trying because again, end of life and grief, there is, I wouldn't say a religious aspect to it, but a more spiritual aspect to it. Mm -hmm. So patients have their own experience with their spirituality. So we try to cater the best that we can because it offers people comfort. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And then even culturally, whatever they grew up with, traditions yeah. um, surrounding death, um, you know, some people celebrate it, some people mourn yeah. weeks. It's very 
cultural, very emotional experience. So it, it sounds like in the program that you're with, it sounds pretty good. I, I'm, I'm kind of yeah. happy with a lot of the things that you said so far. It's been like, we're in the establishment with a lot of these, <laughs> but it's been really nice to hear that. I mean, of course you're overworked, maybe yeah. vaccinated, that would change, but it's so, it's reassuring to know that you have other supports and that you are encouraged as an individual to avoid the burnout that comes with such an emotional career but I wish that other departments would take that into consideration too because of course the assumption is you know there's a big correlation of death with cancer and as you said on your floor a lot of death but there's a lot of death in other aspects too and if there it's not death it's still a big life change and that's still a thing for the patient and also for a medical professional to witness especially if it's something that they've never seen before they're not used to chronic, being exposed to chronically ill people and yeah be like oh i can't cure this person that's probably a big adjustment yeah, it is an adjustment i but it's also like you know i think there's a misconception that you have to be dying to experience grief but i think people experience grief all throughout their life and might not realize it, right? So grief of a significant other, grief of a transition into a new job or grief of, you know, this like loss of identity that comes with being di- being chronically ill sometimes. Um, and I don't know, I think that <laughs> grief and death, like it just, it's not just grief and death, it's grief all over the place, right? So I I like talking about grief and like educating people on it. So that's something I feel passionate about. I wish I could do more of it. <laughs> What'd you say? I wish the listeners could see you smiling. <laughs> no, because I, I think it's important. I don't know. I think it's important. I, I just think when you deal with your emotions in like a, a way that's therapeutic and you can change your perspective about life I think it's awesome and grief is a big part of that so yeah well do they talk about radical acceptance a lot in your in that Mm. field that might be more of a social worker question I think that's a social work question honestly I know what radical acceptance is um but I wouldn't say they at least I've never heard anyone talk about it I but granted there are private conversations that they have with social workers and psychologists that I am not privy to so um Mm -hmm. It could they could talk about it. I mean, I in my own way present the idea of radical acceptance to my patients um, in my own therapeutic communication. But it's it, you know, I find it's hard sometimes because you can say to somebody, you know, sometimes you would just have to accept that this is this is the way that things are, but they don't want to accept that sometimes. So that's a that's a tough thing to kind of navigate through so yeah to let them figure it out on their own time oh yeah for sure because it it is their it's your grief but it's also their grief too so it's yeah being being hard but you you've touched upon so many issues and I'm I'm happy it went another direction (laughs) I've had so much negativity so it was kind of nice to see what what is working yeah this is the problem I have. You, you really presented a lot of solutions. It's nothing that could be fixed in a day, but sure not. 
really showed that if they have the tools and you have the support, everybody, the staff and the patients can be protected and can be supported and hopefully not burn out on either end. Um, so I, I thank you for everything that you do. You are an incredible person to be doing the hard job that you're doing. Um, I know you said you've been looking at other job listings, so if they're terrible to you, then screw them. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but it really, it really is, you know, I love what I do. And, and there's a certain part about it that I would not get another place, which is something that I myself, if I did get another job, would grieve because I feel, you know, it impacts my life in a way I feel like I'm impacting other people's lives. And that's part of the reason I went into nursing. But because of that lack of support on the staffing side, it's almost like, okay, well, you know, you got to take care of yourself too. You have to like figure it out. Like, yeah, there could be all these positive things, but if you feel so burnt out that you can't do your job, because it's, it's almost, I would say across the board for nurses, that's kind of where it's at, where you're spread so thin that patients really are not getting the care that they deserve, especially these patients with chronic pain. It's like, and you feel horrible and you take that on and it's like, okay, well, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing here? What's going on? So that's really difficult. So nothing set in stone, but <laughs> something Keep I've been the options open. Yes. Go, yes. go where you're wanted. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. Yes. Is there any other experience that you wanted to bring up that I didn't ask about today? Mm, I wrote notes. You wrote something about if patients are lying, a question. Mm -hmm. That's something that I not, not struggle with, but just like something that helps if I do have that, because I'm a human being, obviously you have these like things that come pop into your head when you're taking care of somebody that's human nature. Mm -hmm. I find that when you like talk to your coworkers about it, it's super helpful. And you say, you know, this is the situation. I'm having a hard time seeing it clearly. Can you, you know, talk to the person or can you help me see this more, you know, subjectively to this person? So that's super helpful. Um, and that, and again, that comes back to when I have those moments, it comes back to ratio of, I can't take a deep breath and say, no, this person isn't lying. No, this person isn't like making it up. Like they're very, like they're in pain. So that's difficult to navigate. I wish we just had more nurses, man. <laughs> I just wish we had more nurses. I really do. But like, just to kind of get you through the day, like, no, they're lying. So let me just move on. Well, yeah. And I, but I also think that it's like, um, have you ever seen those like TikToks or if you've talked to other nurses, it's like, you have to flip a switch when you're at work and turn mm -hmm. off your emotions. That's a very real thing. That's a very, that's a very real thing for police officers as well. My dad's, my dad's a police officer. So we talk about this a lot because it's kind of similar where you just kind of have to go numb almost to like get through the shift or the week because if you took on everybody's stuff it would be too much you know mm -hmm. so that part's rough and I think that's where therapy comes in where you can you gotta let it out and unload it otherwise oh, yeah burn out way quicker yeah, yeah. I think burnout is inevitable just the way that hospital oh yeah it's that that was another thing that just the hours I makes no sense to me. I could never be a hospital worker just from the hours that you have to work 
Um, but it's it it seems like there needs to be a lot of reevaluation of how a lot of these things operate and yeah. how staffing and how we are giving the attention because you know as we learn more about diseases, more people are going to get sick. Plus, as you know, the earth is more polluted, it's just going to yeah. happen. Yeah, we're looking more towards that way. So there, it needs to be addressed soon because it's only yeah. worse, especially if we have another pandemic. Yeah, yeah, which but, I mean, as history shows, can happen. <laughs> we're not the first. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if you know when you got hired at a new job in in any in any profession, but you know the jobs where you see a lot of burnout. If you had to sit down with a therapist or a social worker just to talk about what it means to kind of step into this role if you would see a decrease in burnout or if you had like mandatory or suggested check-ins every year or every couple months if it would be a little bit different I don't know because yeah. I you know I'm I'm fortunate like I have access to therapy not everybody has access to therapy so um like you said before, I, you know, I, me and my therapist are super close. I've been seeing her for a while and it's nice to just have a space that's, you know, completely my own where I don't have to worry about the judgment of others. And I, I, I firmly believe that everybody should have access to that in some way because it's, it's a game changer. It's a huge game changer. Well, so you mentioned your dad, Mm -hmm. um, a little bit, I know about police officers from watching law and order, Um, (laughs) if somebody dies you know they have to go get briefed and whatever yeah is there anything like that in nursing if a patient dies um even if it's not your fault but just if something happens and they die do you have to go through any like briefing process or do you just have to move on and come back the next day so it depends on the situation um so there's there's a lot of ways people can die but you know there's if you have to you know, do CPR on the person and, and have, we call it a full code where you're doing everything, they're getting intubated and they can just, you know, not make it through that because it is a very traumatic experience. And then you have, what we see on our floor a lot is when you transition the person to comfort care where you know the person is dying and you're supporting them through the dying process. When you have a code on the floor, you have a debriefing where you talk about the code, what went right, what went wrong, how was the communication, how was the speed of the medication, how was, you know, just the the vibe of it. So there's debriefing on that part, because I would say that those experiences can be considered a little bit more traumatic um, because it's very fast paced and your adrenaline is running and then there's like this come down from it. Um, but when a patient is comfort care, there is no debriefing, which I find interesting because it's still deaf, right? Um, but when you have, you know, patients, let's just say like five patients die in one week on the floor and it's patients who have been there for months and months and months, I would argue that there should be a debriefing for that. There should be some type of, you know, session for the nurses and doctors and PAs and nurse practitioners, you know, to sit down and say, you know, how do you think that went? What could we have done better? Cause it's, it's, I talk about it and it sounds smooth. It's not always as smooth as it sounds where there's, Oh, 
is this person comfort care? Are they not comfort care? You know, does this person want to be comfort care? Do they not want to be comfort care? How's the family? So that part's a little heavy because nobody debriefs you on that. And no, nobody really comforts you on that. I would say the nurses on the floor, we check in with each other and that's very special um, and helpful because we're all in it together really. But as far as like an overall, let's sit down and talk about it. It's not really that way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And like you're saying, even though it is, you know, a planned death, it's yeah. still, you know, you don't choose at the exact moment. So, oh no, that could, you never know how long that'll go, but that's, that's really heavy. Um, and that's a lot. And then even though it's what they wanted, and even if they're old and lived the life, it's not easy to experience so I think you're right having more of that would probably be helpful um and I I would think that if you're because I don't know where you worked in your clinicals too but if even if you've just seen like a traumatic something come Mm. in you know with a bad wound or something like a car accident um it seems like maybe I, I don't have any statistics on this but like that PTSD would be pretty high in oh for sure for sure. Something, I mean, this is, this is very personal, but you know, I find myself sometimes when I see people sleeping in my everyday life, I stop to see if they're breathing Mm. and that's, that is PTSD. That's not something (laughs) that you normally do. Um, but that's just the piece of it. And my dad, my dad shares a similar experience of just, you know, being hyper aware, hyper cautious and, um, not knowing what to do with it, I would say. Um, so there, I, uh, there needs to be more help with that, I think. And I think, you know, you learn from the people who are doing your job, right? So as a new nurse, you come in, you get precepted and the way that that person kind of copes with it, you kind of take it on a little bit, but it might not be as therapeutic as it could be, right? So if you have a person that's precepting you, that's teaching you and their coping mechanism is it didn't happen. Just forget about it. There's no way for you to really say, Oh, maybe there's other ways for me to cope with this. So maybe just coping with, you know, the fact that you do see repetitive trauma over and over and over again would be helpful as well. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Takeaways, more money, more More money. Staff, <laughs> um, these all seem it seem attainable, but not an overnight fix. So I'm, no. I'm glad we are having this conversation, and I hope that you inspire more people to want to participate too. And I share um, because I think that you highlight a lot of issues. And I think that we saw a lot of support for nurses, of course, in COVID, but keep the energy going because. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I sound like I've bashed medical professionals so many times on my episodes when I talk about my experience, but I always want to make it clear. Like, I don't view that as a whole. I view it as an issue that this person was subjected to because of the hand that they're dealt in the yeah. hospital they work for, which is problematic because of the whole system of our healthcare. Yeah. States. There's a lot of layers to why these things happen, but they still happen to individuals and that could change an individual's entire life. Yeah. And mess with them mentally yeah so I'm really appreciative of how mindful you are 
in your patients, but also how mindful you are of taking care of yourself too. And I think that you have a really great approach to it. And so have the other people that I've interviewed. So I have really good hopes for the future of healthcare. <laughs> I think that Me too. a very healthy path um, of approaching things. So I really appreciate everything you've said. And I'll ask again, is there anything else that you wanted to bring up that I didn't ask? I think we covered, we, we covered a lot here. <laughs> and I'll, I'll definitely bring you back next semester when I expand. Oh, for sure. This, but um, thank you so much. You were amazing. And- oh, and listen, listen, thank you for opening this up to medical professionals. Cause I really, you know, I think it's really important to have conversations with each other. Cause that's the only way that, you know, the care of the chronically ill is going to get better is to mm-hmm. share experience, right? <laughs> Thank you again, Carol. That was enlightening. Um, So we are done with all three episodes now. And there was a lot of consistency in the issues that we talked about. Um, Which I don't think you found to be that surprising, right? I mean, that's... No, I'm not shocked to learn that nurses are overwhelmed and need resources and support and more time and that they're burning out. Yeah, I would I would have and you know, just based on what I've seen, you know, people in in the world talking about or in the media, but I think even with my understanding of maybe that being the case, I still in thought that there was stuff to take away in these interviews that you can't get from just general mm-hmm. reading of of statistics or news stories and things like that. So. Yeah, and I I think it was nice to end on a positive note. Carol had a lot of really great things to say about the workplace that she's at and what they're doing correctly and how it's possible for other places to do that. Um, So to recap, um, for Carol, her patients are consistent. She primarily um, treats women with cancer. Mm -hmm. The hospital she works at has a lot of funding, resources, and support. And just in hearing her attitude talking to us compared to the attitude of some other people we've spoken with, there's a big difference in just morale, I think. Yeah, e- sure. Even though she's dealing with so much death and so much trauma, I don't want to say it's more or less worse off than other people. I no, think that sure. that's very subjective. Right, but right, right. she's probably seeing more routine death than the average person, especially having an end and working with people in end of life. Mm-hmm. Um But even with all of these positives, there's still a lot of turnover, burnout, and as she mentioned, PTSD among the nurses. So I I appreciated everything that Carol said, especially the need for death education, especially in the end-of-life care. Yeah, that was very interesting. And just accepting that your job isn't to heal anymore. That's an interesting thought to wrap your head around. Yeah, really is. So... Uh, but with all of these things that um, she said, I wanted to do a little bit more research on end-of-life care because I imagine that's something that needs more research to properly prepare people on. So there was an article titled Burnout, Caring for Critically Ill and End-of-Life Patients with Cancer. Very specific to Carol's experience Absolutely, here. Absolutely, yeah. Um, this is by Natalie Pattison, Joanne Droney, and Pascal Gruber. And they highlight a lot of the issues that Carol brought up in her experience as an oncology nurse. Their study found that a low level of burnout was observed in the emotional exhaustion domain 
depersonalization was higher in the critical care professionals, and overall, personal accomplishment was higher than normative scores. Free text analysis highlighted three categories of responsive responses, debriefing, managing well-being, and valuing individuals. There was a need to proactively recognize issues, undertake more debriefs, open forms regarding cases, particularly with difficult deaths, engaging all professionals supporting engaging all professionals support to deal with families and mandatory morale distress and resilience training were suggested alongside a focus on team building through external activities such as group relaxation sessions and walks Mm -hmm. now i wish i looked this up before i interviewed her to see what she thought about these two um yeah I, i i should send her this article um but there is a need for self care, especially when you're dealing with so much death and trauma. Um, and I wouldn't limit this to just oncology nurses. I would think this should be kind of a resource spread and available across the board. Well, I mean, frankly, it's not bad advice for most people. I mean, if we're, yeah. being, if we're being frank. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so uh, continuing on this trauma and PTSD in nurses, I wanted to look that up too and see how prevalent it is. And Thomas Schwarz, an RN, wrote for the article, wrote an article for Viewpoint titled PTSD in Nurses. He states, it is my belief that primary and secondary vicarious traumatic, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, play a role in the exodus of nurses from our profession. They sure did in mine. Many researchers have, sought, researchers have sought to determine reasons for the nursing shortage. One often cited is burnout, a state of emotional and physical depletion that I consider a subspecies of PTSD, which is often accompanied by an aversion to work and is caused by repeated and unrelieved workplace stress. Mm-hmm. Or as a friend of mine put it, how much can you take? Apparently some of us have limits. Yeah. So in the same article, he concludes... Too often, healthcare professionals suffer in silence together. In order to stanch the flow of nurses from the profession, nursing schools must put more emphasis on burnout prevention. Hospitals, nursing homes, and visiting nurse services must provide confidential and effective counseling to all employees. Research should not should attempt to determine the optimal interventions and establish why some nurses seem not to experience PTSD. Most important. Nurses must acknowledge the burdens they bear and the emotional and physical tolls they take. They might just be adding to the crisis in nursing. Yeah. So I think that article was a good conclusion for the the three that we had. Um, And yes, your job is to take care of these individuals. But um, and I I actually talked to my own therapist about this and he made a good point an example saying there's a reason on the airplane you're supposed to put the mask on yourself before you put it on your child yeah yeah um you're not going to be help to the people around you if you yourself are not in the right headspace or physical space to do so sure i mean that makes sense i mean you you know to to be dependent on by someone else you have to be able you have to be dependable and sometimes that means you know having to care for yourself Mm mm-hmm and I guess I should say, full disclosure with that, I talk to my therapist about all these episodes <laughs> that we record. Yeah. And that's why I went back to therapy. I mean, I'm not a nurse, but it is a lot to hear these stories. And I'm only talking to people about their experiences. I'm not witnessing it firsthand. Yeah. So I I take a lot of it just from hearing about it. So I, 
it's hard for me to p understand and I probably never will and that's why I'm not a nurse or a social worker right the toll that it takes on you physically and mentally to be in this situation and it's been very insightful for for you on the patient side mm -hmm. you know it's 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 a new uh, and I don't think there's anything that you didn't already maybe know or you know made presumptions about but now you're getting some first-hand account that will kind of shade the way that you interact with healthcare professionals probably going forward it's, it's going to be mm -hmm. different every anytime you deal with somebody now yeah. this is not you know it doesn't mean that you know you shouldn't re you know demand any sort of specific no kind of thing. still be an advocate for yourself um but I think it's important to remember that the nurse is a person too and it's not her fault that she can't see you. It's the hospital and it's, it's our healthcare system and there's a bigger issue and maybe not take your anger out on the individual. Um, there's a difference between advocating for yourself and just being rude. Certainly. <laughs> you know? Um, certainly. And the overlap is <laughs> the overlap is there, but I mean, it certainly is, is there. And I, I think it, this is just providing, you know, as you said in episode one, you know, we talk a lot about healthcare professionals in this on this show. We talk a lot about people's experience, good and bad, with healthcare professionals, um, and, and it's and it's important that we you know look at at the world as a you know three D dimensional, four dimensional, five dimensional <laughs> uh, thing. And there's it, so it, many factors. Perspective, perspective, perspective. You know. Yes. So thank you again to all three participants. And again, we would love to hear from all these perspectives. So if you heard something that you you know want to talk about your own experience, please, please, please send us your story through our website. We are back and we want to hear from you. And Kayla, I want to thank you for sharing these conversations with me and the rest of the audience. Oh, well, th thanks for the sick invite. The noise, noise, noise. It was too echoey. This one, this one. Yeah. The noise, noise, noise. That's a cool one. <laughs>